1 Samuel chapter 20 is one of the longest chapters in the book of Samuel. And any time you have a long chapter, um, probably means it's important. And this chapter is especially important, so we're going to dive in. 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is God's Word. It says... Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Jonathan said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives... There is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David knows that King Saul is trying to kill him. But Jonathan doesn't want to believe it. He doesn't realize it yet. And so David comes up with this plan to convince Jonathan There's a feast about to happen. And David is going to be expected to attend the feast. But David is going to skip the feast. Claiming that he has to attend a a sacrifice in his hometown of Bethlehem. Jonathan, the plan is, will tell Saul about that sacrifice. And if Saul gets angry, then Jonathan will know his father intends to kill David. Jonathan agrees to this plan, but he asks David to promise that he will show grace to Jonathan's family. And then they make a covenant. Verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. I want to remind you that a covenant was not just an oath that two people took to one another. A covenant was a ritual. And normally, that ritual involved cutting up animals and separating their parts to create a pathway of blood. The two men would then pass by each other. They would walk between the animals. And the idea was that they are promising something to one another. And if they fail to keep that promise, they're saying to one another, may I be cursed and slaughtered like these animals. That's a covenant. It's a bond in blood. Now, specifically, the terms here, Jonathan 
is asking David for grace. He knows that if David is correct, if Saul wants David dead, then the two of them may never see each other again. So this is a costly covenant because it means their relationship might be ending, but it's also costly because protecting David might cost Jonathan his life. It will definitely cost Jonathan his kingdom. Jonathan will never be king. Now, normally, the son of the king would be the next king, the firstborn son. If someone else takes over the kingdom from another family, that man would would almost always kill the entire family of the other king in order to protect his own lineage, his own family tree. And that makes sense, right? And Jonathan knows this, and he's asking his friend, David, for grace. It's also interesting that all of this happens in a field, and I don't think that's just a a throwaway detail. This story um, makes Jonathan something like an anti-Cain. Okay, do you remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis Cain and Abel were the two sons of Adam. And Cain was jealous of the favor God showed Abel because God preferred Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. Remember this story? So Cain, in jealousy, kills his brother Abel. Now Jonathan had every reason to be jealous of David to be angry with what God is doing in David's life, the favor that he's showing someone who is outside the family. But instead of being jealous and angry and vengeful, Jonathan willingly gives up his crown and defends David's life at the risk of his own. I love what Ralph David says about this passage. He says, Life does not consist of achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. Jonathan gives up his goals. Gives up what he most certainly felt like, on some level, on a human level, belonged to him. He gives it up for the sake of the relationship, of a friendship. And that's it. And I hope you're beginning to see why this chapter, I think, is so important. This story is incredibly rich with shadows of the gospel. You see that, right? And it gets even better because Jonathan tells David... He says, I'll send word to you what happens on the third day. And just so we don't miss it, the writer of Samuel says it three times. I'll send word to you on the third day, third day, third day, right? That is a 
big neon sign reminding us of the death and resurrection of Jesus, who was raised from the dead on which day? The third day. Okay. Now, the writer probably has no idea, but God just kind of put that in there, right? Just so we know as Christians, there's something more going on. Verse 24. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Empty tomb. <laughs> so on the second day, Saul asks about David's absence and Jonathan gives the excuse they planned. And then verse 30 says this, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. And why is he bringing his mom into this? I don't know. But do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? and to the shame of your mother's nakedness. Notice that Saul refers to David as the son of Jesse, meaning he is rejecting David as a member of his household. He's also disowning Jonathan. Verse 31. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he will surely die. Kind of underline in your mind that phrase, you nor your kingdom. Keep that. We're going to come back to it. Okay. Verse 32. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Again, think about Jesus. Think about the cross. Think about all the accusations that were unfair. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Can't help but think about the spear that pierced Jesus on the cross. The next morning on the third day, Jonathan sneaks out to tell David goodbye. And this is how the chapter ends. Verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Jonathan says, Go in peace. Now that may seem a little strange, because Jonathan and David both know things are not going to be peaceful. Right? Things are about to become very difficult for both of them. If you know the rest of the story, not going to be easy, not going to be peaceful. But that's not Jonathan's point. He says, go in peace. Why? Because we have taken vows to be at peace with one another. And brothers and sisters, what I want to say to you about this text is that 
That is the promise of the gospel to the Christian. The promise of the gospel is not that we should expect a peaceful, easy, healthy, prosperous life. Not the promise of the gospel. In fact, we should expect, according to Jesus, our Savior, our Master, that our lives will be quite difficult. But the offer on the table, the offer of the gospel, is peace between us and God. The relationship that matters most in this world for us, that anchors everything else, that's the offer of the gospel, is that there will be peace between us, His children, and Him, our Father. But my question for us, and to try to get at the application of this, why? Why do we need peace with God? Why is that so important, even if nothing else in our lives is stable? Why does peace with God matter if we don't have peace anywhere else or with anyone else sometimes? There are some clues in this story to help make sense of that question. The first clue is that David and Jonathan were friends. They had this this love for each other, this, this brotherly love, this deep fellowship. But the story tells us that their friendship is being tested. It's being tested because only one of those men could be king. And this is why Saul was so angry with Jonathan. He says it plainly. He says, Jonathan, you're choosing David and David's kingdom over your own. That is the dilemma. That's why Saul is so angry with both David and Jonathan. Because Jonathan is giving up a kingdom and all the power and glory that comes with it for a friend. He's giving it all up. And guys, that is exactly, that is exactly the issue between us and God. This is is it. God loves His children. He loves us immensely. He created us. He weeps when we suffer. It crushes Him to see us in sin, to see us dying. But there's this issue of rebellion between us and God. Because we cannot both be king. We cannot both be king. Am I king? Or is God king? 
Will it be my kingdom or His? That is always the question at the heart of faith and repentance. Not just if you're not a Christian, but even if you are, every single day, today, will I repent and believe? It's the same question. Am I king or is God? Will it be my kingdom today, Mike, or will it be His? In the Gospel of Mark, these are the first words of Jesus Christ. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. First words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. He says, right now, Kairos, this moment, today, this hour, this is the time. And I'm I'm speaking to you, personally, you, today. This is the moment. Whatever time it is. 11, 19, 29 seconds on a Sunday morning, September the 19th, 2021. Today, this is the moment for you. The kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe in the gospel. The question is, what are you going to do with that news? That it's His kingdom or yours. Right now. What are you going to do with that news in your life? Listen to how Jesus taught His disciples to pray. He said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In other words, not me, God, but you. We're praying to the Father. Not my will, but yours. Not my kingdom, but your kingdom. This is how we're supposed to understand the dilemma of the gospel and our need for repentance. And you know, it's confusing unless you think about it this way. Why are we asking God for His kingdom to come? Isn't God already king? Doesn't He already own everything? The answer is yes, He is king. Yes, He already does own everything. But guess what? Everybody's not worshiping Him as king. Everyone's not acting like He's king. In heaven they are. On earth they are not. Which is why Jesus says to pray for that. Because we're still asking the question. The angels are not, right? The angels got it. He's God. He's king. We're still asking that question every day. Am I king? Or is he king? That's why we're taught to pray this. Jonathan makes his choice and he chooses David. Not himself. And he asks David for grace. That word grace, the word hesed in Hebrew, hesed, if you remember, that's the word for God's steadfast love, His covenant love. It's also the word for favor of God that we do not deserve. Okay, so something that we have not earned that is being given. And that is the irony of the choice that Jonathan makes. It's it's a false choice. 
It's a false choice because God has already taken the kingdom from Saul and given it to David. Right? We've read about this. Saul's days are numbered. Jonathan will never be king. Jonathan had no chance of getting the crown. So in giving it up, quote unquote, he's simply acknowledging to be true what God has already said. He's accepting the reality, the spiritual future reality of what God has said about his kingdom. God was not going to let Jonathan be king. If Jonathan had rejected David and tried to keep the kingdom for himself, it would have been a foolish choice because it would have been impossible. The choice was only to either accept or reject what God had already decided. And the same thing is true for us. God says, I'm the king. I'm your king. Whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not, this is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It's a kingdom. One king. I'm not it. And we are all tempted every day to hold on to the idea that we are in control of our lives, that we will get what we want in the end if we just work hard enough, that we don't actually need God. That's what we're actually saying by doing that. But guys, Jesus is already king. He's already king. He doesn't need our acceptance of that fact. He doesn't need our approval of that reality. We have no control. We have no power. We have earned no glory. It's all a delusion. But what we're being offered is the truth. And God offers it to us in a way similar to how David offered it essentially to Jonathan, or how God was offering it to Jonathan, really. It's by way of a covenant promise. And that's exactly how God offers us the truth. It's how He's able to offer us the truth. It's through a covenant. Jesus Christ emptied himself of his rights like Jonathan. He stepped down from his throne in heaven to embrace us as brothers and sisters. But unlike Jonathan and David, Jesus walked the covenant path of blood alone. We didn't walk it with him. We we could not. We would not. And so, Jesus, in the covenant, played the role of both the covenant keeper and the covenant breaker. That's kind of the, the deep meaning, right? The quote Narnia, that's the deep magic. I mean, this is 
this is the kind of the nugget that just will blow your mind if you just focus on this for just a moment. Jesus became on the cross both the covenant breaker and the covenant keeper. He took our place while also being in the place of God. He was literally mocked as a king. A crown of thorns was placed on his head and a sign that mocked him as the king of the Jews was above his head on the cross while he was being broken and crushed for our sins, for all our daily attempts to be king in his place, which is what sin is. And in that moment, that historical time and place, a couple thousand years ago, the justice of God met the grace of God in the only one worthy to be called our king. Now, what do you think he wants from his followers, from his subjects? Because that's what we are. What does he want from us? Well, of course, he wants our faithfulness and our obedience because he's king. He wants our trust, he wants our hearts. He wants our lives to be shaped by the cross. In other words, He wants us to give up our kingdom for His. And the funny thing is we come with empty hands because we had no kingdom to give up in the first place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... We're being offered a kingdom not as king but as your family. In Christ it says that we have an inheritance that is unmatched by anything this world can offer. And when we come to you empty-handed to lay down our kingdom, we, we're, not, we're not really giving anything of any value up. Because everything belongs to you. We belong to you. All we're giving up are lies. And so, Father, for each of us here this morning, whatever lies we've been believing about ourselves, about this world, some of us believing lies that have us feeling ashamed and of little value. Others believing that we've done it all and that we're good and that we're, we're proud of who we are. And, and Lord, none of it matters. You are enough. Your kingdom is enough. You, our King, are enough. In Christ alone we stand. And we do so now to sing your praises in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.